Welcome to EdTech Adventures. Join us as we explore the role of technology, STEM, and creative play in education. With expert guests, we'll discover how learning is always an adventure. No boundaries, no rules, no expectations, just play. What if all learning experiences followed these four simple guidelines? Today, our guest Tanner Higgin will share how unstructured play could be integrated into ed tech and education. We'll review the key components needed to make unstructured play successful and highlight a few pitfalls to avoid as well. Tanner has nearly 20 years of experience in education, first as a teacher and researcher, and later as a learning designer and editorial director. At GameTesk, he helped to create the Playmaker School and its curriculum. At Common Sense Media, he led the editorial team that rated and reviewed over 4,000 EdTech products. He's now the principal consultant at DuneShift, where he helps EdTech startups and companies make more meaningful and effective content and learning experiences. Thanks so much for joining us, Tanner. Thank you, Charlotte. I'm excited about this. This is one of my favorite topics. Me too. So let's start at the beginning of your journey. Could you describe a memorable education experience that you've had as a student? For me, the thing that pops into my head is a project I did. I think it was probably late elementary school or early junior high. I wish I could remember the teacher and grade and subject, anything like that of specifics. I just remember the project, which speaks to how valuable the learning experience was. But this was, to my memory, the first like truly interest-driven project I did, and it was focused on Atlantis. I think maybe the teacher was asking us to look up some sort of mythology, something or other, and I chose Atlantis for some reason. And I ended up spending far, far more time on this project than I had anything else prior because we had gotten a computer recently and I was hooked up to Prodigy Internet. And I just started going deep into an early internet rabbit hole on Atlantis and finding all these sources. And I combined it with library sources that I found at the school and put it all together in like this sort of creative brief with pictures embedded in. I can't remember the computer program I was using, but it was one of those things that it was like totally self-driven. And I went way above and beyond because it was just I was interested in the subject matter and I was discovering like an interest in computing and technology and sort of seeing how the internet could be a part of that. And to me, that's like become when I reflect back on my career and where I've ended up, like in some ways, it's sort of that experience that maybe set off that spark. And whoever that teacher was, I don't remember your name, but thank you. <laughs> I hear you. I, I still call out to Mr. Madkins, Mrs. Bocott, Ms. Smith. There's certain pivotal teachers yeah. that have touched. Usually in, when I ask this question, it's always that one teacher or that one project that really, yeah. like you said, it lit the spark of interest and, oh, this is what learning can be. I remember exactly like you, given the freedom to just dive into a project. And weirdly, it was the film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, mm -hmm. and how that reflects how our government works. And I also put together a binder. I went online, yeah. found these diagrams, printed them out, like explained the thing. And I, I still have that binder. Like it's that pivotal. That's awesome to share. <laughs> I wonder, so this is my theory about that. My belief is that everyone's answer starts with interest, right? And that like, in terms of my values as an educator and learning designer, 
It's all about capturing student interest and then aiding their agency to go seek out and find and structure their own learning. And I've found whenever I've asked that question to someone, that project or that experience often revolves around their own personal passions. And it's like, if we would all just understand that and start organizing education around that, like maybe every day would be that exciting, right? Yeah, agreed. It can be scary though. So you you were a teacher too. For me, yeah. I remember like my first year, it's sort of scary because you have classroom management issues and things like that. And so you sort of want to be in control, which is the opposite of what you need to do to allow for that type of freedom. Like you said, that agency. Did you try and practice that when you were a teacher in the classroom? I tried. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the classic, someone who, you know, preaches something, but then you know, in practice, it really does come down to, to me, curricular obligations are really, to me, even more than classroom management, the amount of content anyone has to cover in the given set, in the given amount of time makes it so difficult to do fully interest-driven work because you just have to plow through content. And interest-driven work relies on like going deep, and sort of giving someone the space to discover and have things emerge that might be off the curricular map, right? So in limited cases, I feel like I was very successful with it, but never quite in, in terms of a full class curriculum. I feel like, yeah, I agree. And the moments piece, you would have moments of that, and then it would just go away because yeah. you had to deal with assessment and things like that. Mm -hmm. Is that how you became interested in the world of ed tech? Like as you were teaching, exploring and running into that kind of a, a struggle? Yeah, in some ways, I think. So I always had this interest in tech and I was one of those young people who was on the early internet making websites and tinkering and getting really involved in online communities and forums on AOL and that kind of thing. So it'd been a current throughout my life. And then I went to grad school and was teaching and studying and went in as like a British romanticist studying literature. And within the first year had switched over entirely to focusing just on games because I had discovered in some classes and I went to UC Riverside with some really brilliant professors there, most notably James Tobias, who's still there, that like you could just, you could do work on games. Like they were a media form, just like literature and you can study it. So I began studying it and really digging deep into the history of technology, what's kind of called science and technology studies in academia. And one of the key sort of obsessions of that area of academia is unpacking the tension between technology and culture, the way technology can accelerate the culture from which it emerges and can accelerate both the good and bad based on your own value system, right? And I became fascinated in the way this applies to learning and play, because when we use a tool in education or design a tool in education, there's the potential of a technology to vastly expand kind of the creative capability of what students are doing and give them all of these opportunities. But it also equally often aids surveillance and data capture and incredible control over a student experience. And we see this in games as well. Games can be like joyful 
and open-ended, or they can feel like rote and onerous, right? In World of Warcraft, you can feel like you're exploring this virtual world and traveling with friends and doing all these amazing things. Or when you're doing like high-end raiding with groups of people, it feels like a job. Like, like you're working a job, right? Yeah, being someone who dove heavily into WoW as a no mage <laughs> who like I dipped into the rating and was so felt completely out of love with that area. But I was the one who would just run through towns having dance parties and collecting yeah. pets. And I think it's so interesting that in that game, like it was so expansive that it allowed for both of those experiences to exist yeah. within one game. But I agree there's like within that one game, you could see the positives and negatives of what it could accelerate because, oh man, some of those raids, people were yelling at each other and <laughs> being very uh, non-cooperative. So yeah, it, there is a danger in that too. And I think this is even more relevant in the world of AI. We've been talking about how AI also accelerates along these tracks too, both in data capture, but also in freedom of expression and freedom of creation. So this really delves into the topic that we highlighted in the beginning, unstructured play. So in your work and what you've done, what does unstructured play mean to you, whether it's in games or any of the other learning experiences that you've worked on? This is a tricky question because play and games, right, are interconnected. So when you talk about unstructured play, but then games are highly structured, definitionally, it starts to get a little cloudy. But I would say that in my view, unstructured play, the key aspect of it is freedom and choice and a very particular kind of choice, non-trivial choice. So in a lot of ed tech, you'll see choice being marketed, but that is choice of very kind of constricted systems where there's not much you can do in a game. It's like click this button to throw a ball through a hoop and then do a math problem in between or whatever. But for me, unstructured play is all about non-trivial choice where the choice a student or player is given impacts the play in very significant ways and allows them opportunities to really restructure the very play experience toward their own end. So the World of Warcraft example, you know, that is a game. It's got rules and systems and goals and outcomes and all that stuff. But you were able to carve out within that system a way of playing that felt unique to you that was expressing your own interests. And I think that's what we have to strive for when we're doing unstructured play and learning environments is giving students the feeling that they're making a play experience their own and that it can evolve democratically, right? That there is a freedom of choice that is either determined by yourself alone or with the group of people you're playing with. That to me is really the ultimate essence of it. Yeah. Non-trivial choice. I like how you're pairing those two. I keep hearing voice and choice, but sometimes that choice in that voice is sort of trivial. We offer them. And I think part of it is we've offered choice in Code Combat and Azaria, our, our core games. And some of them are semi-trivial where it's just cosmetics, but some are non-trivial where you're putting on gear that affects your ability to use code to complete levels. And those non-trivial choices take so much longer to develop. I mean, mm -hmm. like you're creating multiple paths because you can't anticipate what they choose. So it's a lot more development time. So 
why should we care? Like what kind of benefits do learners get when they experience unstructured play to, to warrant all of that extra work on the design side or on the educator side? Well, I think from a developer's perspective, and this is equally as well teachers, I would say, but to me, the big benefit is you'll learn a lot from your players. If you give them that choice and you're talking with your players and observing them, you'll start to see how they're playing and you should just follow that, right? Like you can learn so much from a student who's sort of evolving a lesson or game that you've structured in new ways and pushing against the boundaries. And if you follow their lead, I think it's going to lead to more learning and engagement ultimately. I see unstructured play almost as research for developers and teachers. It's almost as if players are rewriting, right? A system you've set up through their play and that often those revisions are telling you where you need to go. And you see this quite often in kind of mass market games outside of the educational space. I think Fortnite is a great example of this that, you know, it starts as one thing and then through player activity evolves into another and becomes an entirely different game as players engage with it. And that to me, like play is, is like the ultimate agentive act by students because it's like coming from this like lizard brain place. And if you really want to resonate with someone, it's you want to like capture whatever is emerging there. Love it. When we talk about assessment, that is so much more accurate than valuable than a quiz, right? Because they're, they're actually given the freedom to express that. Now you worked at common sense for around 10 years. What are some examples of unstructured play that you've seen while reviewing different ed tech and media platforms? Cause I agree like world of Warcraft, Fortnite, I've seen examples of that in the non educational space of games, but how about in the ed tech and education space? Yeah, and this was a funny thing at Common Sense because we at Common Sense, and they still do this, is, you know, rating and reviewing educational products according to a rubric. So every product would get scored across 14 research-based points. And when we would score, a lot of these sort of unstructured experiences would score fairly low, like in the three range, right? Meanwhile, the editorial team at Common Sense, those were some of their favorite experiences. It's just when you put them up against the sort of structures of school and what teachers are expecting, they often scored a little bit low. So I'll give you a list of some things that like we found that we really loved personally. But if you go to Common Sense, you're going to see some of these are like three stars. Um, Yeah, yeah. That's (laughs) such an interesting dichotomy. But yeah, Yeah, go for it. Let's, Let's hear some examples. So for me, the one that instantly comes to mind is the work of Vector Park, who is an artist named Patrick Smith that started just as like a digital artist and was making really kind of creative websites where you could sort of push and pull at the sites and discover things along the way. And Patrick started making apps in those early kind of halcyon iPad days, right, where there was a lot of experimentation. It was really cool and made a series of of apps. One that sticks out to me is called Metamorphobet. And essentially it's like this completely unstructured, unguided experience where you're presented with letters 
And then through your gestures, you just poke and prod at the letters and they evolve into new things that kind of echo that letter. And he, he calls it making digital toys, essentially. He puts things in front of you and you mess with them and things happen in the experience that are interesting and delightful and joyful. And we love that, but of course they always score pretty middling. I think Little Alchemy is another great example of this. You might've come across this where you combine what they call elements, which will be like fire and stone and you combine it and, and you generate coal. And you start to fill the screen with elements that you discover by combining two different things. And that's pretty much all you do, but you're trying to kind of get to the end point of discovering everything there is. I think Tiny Bop is a good example of taking these kind of concepts that especially the teachers out in the audience will be thinking like, well, what do I do with that in my curriculum? Well, Tiny Bop, I think, is an example of something that sort of takes it the next step where they, they have a very defined aesthetic in their games. And they're all about open-ended exploration, but they are attached to very clear concepts. In particular, I think they do science really well, where they'll have you play with a scenario and discover like geology and earth science and the way those systems work through your messing with a sort of digital toy in the vector park sense. To me, ultimately though, the best and I would say the best learning game ever created is Minecraft and probably the best example of unstructured play, you know, and that's one everyone probably knows and can relate to. And I, to me, it's almost like a blueprint for, for what all learning designers should aim toward, you know, this sort of brilliant system of tools that players can use to design their own learning experiences and educators can then observe and make into something that really fits into the curriculum really well. Minecraft is a true sandbox, right? Yeah. I've seen my four-year-old play it. I've seen my adult husband play it in like that whole span. And we're partnering with Roblox to make a new game on their platform. It's very, like you said, open-ended. And yeah. we've been learning from Minecraft too. Going, Whoa, what happens when these kids can run amok in a land that you've built and mm -hmm. you give them the tools for them to build whatever they want? It's a magic combination. Mm -hmm. I've also noticed that in those examples you shared, a lot of exploration was given to the players too. What are some other key factors that make a successful unstructured play experience based on all of those examples you've explored? Exploration to me is key. And that just speaks to who I am as a player myself. Like I kind of think there are different types of players. People gravitate towards different things and I'm definitely an explorer. And this is something, if you want to look into it, I think his name's Richard Bartles. Some early game studies theory kind of developed a here are the different player archetypes. And I've, I've always kind of returned to that through my career. So I definitely think exploration is a part of what makes unstructured play good. And I would say, in addition to that exploration, surprise. Like to me, the great thing with any exploratory experience in a game is if you feel like you've uncovered something, you've turned over a stone and there's a whole other world of insects crawling around in there, right? That always makes games great. I also think like, Great unstructured play sort of has built within it social sort of negotiation. Play just by its nature seems to attract social engagement. And I, I always think about on my street growing up, going outside, 
shooting baskets and the the call of the ball hitting the cement kids would emerge <laughs> and things would happen and that experience would lead to something new or a new game we design with the basketball or we would decide to go do something else and i think that's one thing that's like great about play is that sense of social development and the social negotiation it's really key I agree. I mean, this is the first time we've done this more open-ended coding experience and we're, we're starting to go, whoa, like, what is it like for kids to code together instead of by themselves? Because the kids are already trying to do that. They're like running into each other's spaces and trying to go, how did you do that? Or how did you get here? And, and things like that. And it's exciting, but it's also a little scary because I feel like things could go south very quickly. Yes. If you don't develop it. So that dives into my next question. What could go wrong? Like, what are some key factors that could make unstructured play unsuccessful for learners? Yeah, and you're totally right. And I think there's a lot of trepidation around play in schools because of that rogue element and the classroom management challenges. So I would say in my experience, it's absolutely essential before you do really open-ended play to set up kind of social contracts, norms, expectations, responsibilities, and to work very hard at that upfront and revisit it constantly. And this is where Concepts like digital citizenship, I think, are really important that they're done in coordination with other kinds of school activity. You know, teaching kids how to be responsible collaborators, you know, in that coding example, for instance, how to give and get feedback, right, is so important. And I believe you at Code Combat, that's kind of part of what you're doing as well, is working on some of those soft skills that go alongside coding that make for success in the workforce. And I think that is really key. I would also say that it's important after play experiences to not just move on, right? I kind of mentioned how I see play as research. And I think every play experience should have some kind of reflective activity after it. Because that play activity, things will have emerged that you can learn from and iterate on and make it better than next time, particularly around those sort of social negotiations, behavior, there's things to learn from there. But there's also things to learn from in terms of like logistics and what was learned, right? That you expected or didn't expect. Listing that, identifying it, and finding out ways to lean into that in the next session, I think is is really important. Otherwise, it feels like, well, we just went through this sort of chaotic mess. My classroom's a disaster. The principal's like, what's going on in that room? There's all sorts of noise. But if you do that follow-up and reflection, you actually have evidence of something was accomplished. <laughs> I was going to say, I was just like, hey, it's great for the students, but it's also great for the educators because you have that like moment of, oh, okay, good. Like learning did happen, even though it was a chaotic mess. So I'm glad you highlighted that. Yeah. Anything else that you think that we should be like wary of or, or keep an eye on when we're developing unstructured play? Yeah, I also think, and, and this is understandable, but I think ed tech developers in particular tend to want play to seem like school, right? I think in my time reviewing all those tools at Common Sense, I would see experiences that had a very playful essence to them 
but got bogged down in sort of classroom restrictions, data capture, assessment, check-ins, you know, sign-ins and all kinds of things that like sell really well to administrators, but kill the joy of play along the way. And I think it's much better to preserve a pure play experience and then leave those kinds of things out of the experience and offer them to teachers as like modules you can attach to the play experience to make them really work well. To me, a great example of this is a semi-obscure game called Walden made out of USC that's based on Henry Thoreau's Walden. And you basically live as Henry Thoreau on Walden Pond, developed by Tracy Fullerton at USC, who's brilliant, one of like the best learning game designers, I would say. And that experience is you're just in that world doing that stuff. But then they have a robust set of lesson materials that I believe were developed by Matt Farber. And those materials can be used to enrich that game, or you can just play the game, right? And that to me is like the great model where you create a playful experience that can just be that, but you give the materials to teachers to make it even more enriching if they so choose, right? And I think that to me is a great balance because otherwise you're making this playful experience that a student's like, but it's just school. <laughs> I'm doing all, I'm having to like do this checklist of things and fill this out and that out. And it's just never going to get that engagement that feels. I agree. I mean, we ran into this with Azaria because we wanted to hit every single like CS standard for that middle school band. And we're going, okay, some of this, it would feel so shoehorned if we just put this in the game. So we created curriculum off the side, but it's, it is tricky though, because I think even teachers want handholding on how to mm -hmm. implement it. Right. So we've gotten pushback. We're like, no, no, no. Just tell me what to do in day one and tell mm -hmm. me what to do in day two. And I've always pushed back and say, well, check like day one, day two is how are your students reacting to the game? Mm -hmm. And like, this is how you can then pick and choose the curriculum that you think will best fit your students. But that takes like a specific like skill level in the, in the educator to, to yeah. sort of be able to do that. Right. So how do you balance that? How do you help an educator balance that unstructured play with the more structured learning experiences that we sort of need, like that assessment, the check-ins, the reflections, the things that the principal will want to see when they walk into the classroom, you know? things like that. Like, what are some things that an educator can do or someone like us who's developing products for this classroom? Well, I think you've touched on a major one that's missing right now. And that I've heard this when I've given talks to rooms of predominantly teachers around game-based learning is that there's a huge gap for professional development around how to use games and play effectively, just in general, not even specific platforms, but just how to do it well in general. And I've also heard from teachers that administrators in particular need this help to kind of see and honor how play itself has learning value and doesn't necessarily need all of the extra stuff to make it count. So I think that is a big missing piece that there's a market need for professional development around why games are special for learning how they work, how to structure a game-based experience. You know, to strike that balance of structured and unstructured play, I think turn to analog 
experiences. I think those are much easier to implement and don't cost much, can kind of be tuned to your own needs. Often teachers have more experience with analog games. And I'm talking like card games, board games, field games, any kind of playful experience that can be implemented that resonates in a certain way with whatever digital activity or curricular activity you're doing. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to discover how we might be able to create an analog play experience that preps a classroom to do some sort of curricular thing, right? And the most extreme example of this was while we were at Game Desk, we were hosting live action role-playing games and designing alternate reality games that were like scavenger hunts around the school and playing things like Settlers of Catan to lead into math probability lessons. And in the alternate reality game, the scavenger hunt, what students would find would have some sort of fact or knowledge that would lead them into the curriculum they were going to be engaging with. So I think there's ways to use play as a discovery period for students that gets them really jazzed and hooked on whatever might be coming up and then has this special resonance and is far, far easier to implement. And therefore you're balancing like an unstructured, chaotic experience that like primes a classroom to have a little bit more interest in whatever curricular objective you're trying to meet. I love that idea because instead of trying to like combine the two so that they're happening at the same time, which I think is a disservice to both types of learning experiences is to treat it like stages, like you said, where it's that discovery stage where it is unstructured play, but then leverage that into more structured learning or structured like discovery or learning as well. I love that you mentioned board games. I have a wall of board games. I mean, I could just list off pandemic. I know hashtag too soon, but if you played pandemic cooperatively, it really does shine a light about, oh my gosh, like this is how like scientists try and control pandemics and yeah. how they treat, you know, and it, it becomes like a great kickoff for a conversation where you're then delving into the facts and the hows and the whys of that topic too. So thanks for sharing that. Now, how could unstructured play impact the future of ed tech? So from just like a board game, like Agricola or Settlers of Catan to like the games that we're developing for kids to play in the classroom, like Minecraft or like a game like ours, where could it go? How could that impact the future for our kids and for the world of ed tech? To me, especially post 2020, I keep returning to play as it, it just seems like an antidote right now to me, to so much of what ails education in terms of teacher retention, student engagement, social emotional needs. To me, play is the ultimate way to get teachers like to rediscover the joy of learning, to help students find meaning in classroom activity, and to give classrooms opportunities to develop true kind of social bonds, right? Play has that potential, and it's so incredibly needed right now. I kind of see it as, and this is a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot, but I see it as a revolutionary force in education if we let it be that. But it just seems like every system in education is aligned against 
play, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's messy, it's chaotic, it's loud. It sometimes doesn't look like school. It can be hard to see how it meets obligations for testing. And it's all of that is the reason why it's even more important <laughs> because it's not that. <laughs> I, I agree. Cause I mean, I've been talking to teachers where, you know, the kids are coming back from distance learning and they're struggling to just follow social norms in the classroom. I feel like, like you said, the play could sort of be that bridge to them getting acclimated to being in a school again, instead of being at home in front of a laptop, you know, like, and things like that, and that connection piece. We've been playing board games with my four-year-old and seeing how much, I mean, it's just full of math. You're counting points. It's full of literacy because you're reading rules and you're reading how to play the game. It's communication. Like it, you can build all of that within play. And I think you're right. If it involves some training so that educators and administrators can see that kind of learning in play is almost pivotal. It's like crucial to make it work in a classroom, right? Yeah. I love your example of pandemic and other board games, because I think to me, what when you just devote some time to play through that experience and don't get too caught up in how is this meeting my curricular goals or whatever, what you'll find is that that board game and the experience you had playing becomes a sort of concept map that in subsequent lessons, you start referring back to it, right? Like remember in the game when this or that happened, like it resonates with this that we're learning and provides a new lens on that experience or helps you kind of attach it to real world relevance in a way, you know, pandemics all about like the different roles and responsibilities in managing something like that. And when you're deep in, you know, a biology lesson or something, you can then return to pandemic and think about the social consequences and the different kind of career opportunities or whatever involved in it. Love it. I mean, it could be just basically that common language Yeah. that you can build for a classroom to share as you're learning this entire subject matter. Mm -hmm. Love it. So thanks for sharing all of that. Now, I'm sure people who are listening are inspired like, okay, I want to go try that. But what advice would you give to someone who's interested in trying out unstructured play with all of the things that might be scary, either in the classroom or on the product that they're developing? What's a good place to start? The first place to start is with giving yourself permission. I've run surveys with educators around play. And I know for a fact that the vast majority of educators see inherent value in play. And the problem is in a school and classroom environment, it feels like you can't do it. You've got other things to do, got, you know, time limitations, just do it. Just give yourself permission to do it because it's going to be valuable for you and your students. And ultimately you're the best judge of that and you'll figure it out later. <laughs> I would also say that in that play experience, learn from it, treat it as research, follow the fun find out what in that play experience was especially valuable and use it the next time to design something even better, to structure it even better. And to do that, make sure that every time you have a playful or game-based experience in the classroom, you have some kind of reflective activity afterwards for both of you and the students, particularly to identify where the students thought they were learning and what you were observing in terms of their learning. One of the hardest things for people who engage in games, 
especially young students who are playing games, they have a very hard time acknowledging what they've done or learned from that game experiences. And I think teachers can be that partner in that experience to say like, when you were doing this, I saw you doing this thing and that is really special, right? And I had a coworker at Common Sense whose son was struggling with like literacy and started playing Minecraft and she was letting him sort of do fairly unstructured, unguided play and then had him kind of show his world to her. And she noticed he was creating signs with text, right? And writing and researching what to write to kind of identify different areas in the game and tell his friends how to navigate certain structures. And she kind of worked with him to identify that the things that you are struggling with in school, you're figuring out here. And the student might not even be recognizing that that's happening, right? And that's where the magic truly occurs in a playful experience, I think, in that collaboration between teacher and student. Right. And I, I want to call out for the people who are developing products, same thing, like permission, follow the fun. Because when we go into the classroom, we're playtesting, we're often going, we only get an hour. Let's go, 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 go. Let's just really test this like one learning level that we're developing. But I've also discovered when we just give our permission to say, go, go run, go run around in the game. And we're just typing what they do and what they're looking for. All of a sudden they relax and they give us really, really powerful feedback about, oh, why isn't there a treasure chest here? Oh, why isn't this? Oh, this is taking forever to run. And those are things that we never would have gotten feedback wise if we had just stuck to the script of, mm -hmm. okay, go do this level, go finish this thing. Tell us like, how did that work? You know, and I think same there too. So I love it. Permission, follow the fun and reflect. That's great advice for anyone. Tanner, thanks so much for being part of our podcast. I sure learned a lot. Please check out the episode description because we'll have links to all of those great resources and all those great games that he mentioned. Thank you. Thanks for listening to EdTech Adventures. Please subscribe to catch more of our episodes and leave a review to support the show. For more resources and info, visit us at codecombat.com podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Chang. We'll see you on our next learning adventure.